0: You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. We're joined today by Dr. Eric Shade, a surgical oncologist and transplant surgeon at Rush University Medical Center. Dr. Shade is one of the primary investigators on a large multi center international trial called the Dragon Trial that's evaluating the use of combined portal and hepatic vein or double vein embolization to treat advanced liver cancer and metastases. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shade. Thank you. So you and I have spoke offline about this trial and there's a lot of excitement around it, but to get us going today, can you provide a high level overview of what the DRAGON-1 and 2 trials are and what they're looking to evaluate?
1: The DRAGON trials are trials that are set out to investigate a new method to make the liver grow uh, in the body. You may ask why is that important, Uh, and the reason is because because sometimes patients have t- liver tumors. I would uh, count both primary liver tumors as well as liver metastases uh, under those. I would you know say that there are two types of tumors and, and they're both uh, liver metastases and primary tumors. And they're sometimes so big or there's so many that you have very little liver left in the body if you want to remove them. And so in the past we've said we can't remove them, these tumors and they're unresectable. Patients are what we call unresectable. But we've actually found that you can actually grow the liver uh, in the body, uh, make it bigger. And so even very small liver remnants, like less than 20 centimeters, can now serve uh, as a future liver remnant by growing them. And uh, the methods uh, that have been developed multiple ever since the 1990s, but the most recent innovation that we're very excited about is called double embolization, and that's the new method that we're investigating in the DRAGON trial.
0: So before we get into the specifics about what the trial is and looking to explore, I want to talk about the current standard of care for liver cancer metastases, which is portal vein embolization only. In the past, how has that technique helped surgeons provide care for patients and what, is, what has been its limitations for cancer care?
1: Yeah, so portal vein is a method where we basically put material into the portal vein to stop its flow. And what the liver does, it, it then shunts all of the blood flow to the other side of the liver, and that side of the liver then grows. Portal vein was invented about 100 years ago in a lab in New York at the Rockefeller Institute in rabbits as an animal experiment, interestingly, has not been used after that in humans because people didn't dare to to use a method that had been developed in animals and bring it into the human. And maybe also they didn't see the utility for it. But in the 1980s, the Japanese were really the pioneers of bringing portal vein embolization from the animal model that's 100 years old into the human application. And they started initially to treat patients with large primary liver tumors, hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, And they initially used it actually not to make the liver bigger, but they used it to actually prevent the other side of the liver to get basically seeded with the tumor cells. But then they noticed that it really caused a lot of hypertrophy of the other side of the liver. They thought that was very useful. And it was another Japanese surgeon Dr. Makuchi, who is one of the pioneers of liver surgery in Japan anyway, is the person who did the first liver transplants in Japan, uh, who who then brought that into clinical application and used it first in liver metastases. Liver metastases are so different from primary liver tumors in that they usually uh, affect, um, usually just not one of them, they are multiple of those, and they affect frequently both uh, lobes of the liver. And so, uh, PVE has become a very useful method um, uh, ever since the 1980s. The limitation from the beginning was that uh, very soon, uh, liver surgeons noticed that the liver regeneration that they induced with polymerization was very slow, and it wasn't very extensive. And so, it became a standard to say about 15 years ago that, that, yeah, you can use this method, but about... Uh, 30% to 40% of patients uh, do not grow enough to actually make uh, them resectable. And so the failure rate was pretty high. And we were never really happy with that, but we didn't have a better method to make the liver grow than portal vein embolization before the surgery if we wanted to keep the whole liver in place. And so we just went with it and accepted a failure rate of 40%.
0: So at these DRAGON trials, uh, when you're embolizing both the portal and hepatic vein, known as double vein embolization. Why is there such promise in this approach? And more importantly, why wasn't this considered as a viable approach previously? Actually, it was never really thought
1: of because people were hesitating to occlude both the inflow of blood from the gut to the liver as well as the outflow of the blood from the liver because everybody thought, well, this it's not a good thing. To, if you if you uh, obstruct the inflow and the outflow, what you usually get is the organ dies. And certainly, people didn't want to try that. What people have tried, though, in the past, and again, uh, the pioneers here were in Korea, Dr. Wang, in like the 2008, 2009 years, they tried to do it sequentially. So they first obstructed the portal vein. And then later on, they obstructed the hepatic vein. But they let a few days go in between because they didn't want to risk to make the liver so ischemic that it would actually die off. And they noticed that the regenerative rate was not much higher than it had been prior with PVE. So they kind of abandoned the approach as a viable alternative or as a better alternative to portal vein embolization. So portal vein embolization remained the standard after these Korean experiments until ALPS arrived. ALPS is an, a kind of a curious uh, eponym that has been dis- developed by liver surgeons. It's, it's actually translates into associating liver partition and portal vein ligation for staged Those That's what those five letters stand for. And I was a part of the team in Zurich in 2012 who basically picked up a new, a completely radically new method from a group in Germany. And we called that method ALPS at the time because we were in Zurich Uh, because we wanted to make an association to the beautiful mountains we have in Switzerland. And that's why we called it ALPS and we used that eponym. But what ALPS really did for us was it allowed us to grow the liver very fast and to grow it to a larger extent that we had been able to do before. And ALPS was uh, the first time that we really realized that liver patients with liver metastases and liver tumors could become resectable that previously had been thought of as unresectable. So ALPS was initially done in humans. It was never tried in animals. I always have had my issues with that, to be honest. From my personal side, I always felt whenever we explore a new method, we should first do it in animals and then move it to humans. But ALPS evolved between 2007 and 2012 and was then published in 2012 by a German group, it was 12 cases that they had done in uh, different German hospitals, and they actually showed that they could induce rapid liver regeneration with this method. And they had three patients who died within 90 days after surgery. So a mortality, a perioperative mortality that was quite high. We felt three out of 12 ca- cases at the time, and we, we discussed that critically. It was a 12% mortality if you want to talk about that when you have only 12 cases, but it was a too high mortality. But we picked up the, the operation in Zurich in 2012, and try to develop it and uh, explore its potentials. And I actually published a paper in 2015. It's a paper that was published in the journal Surgery where I described um, uh, really that Alps was a breakthrough because we could now base a future liver remnant on only one of the eight liver segments, which was an absolute revolution. So Alps was a revolution in many ways. It was invented in humans and it was not previously developed in animals. One of the first people who developed an animal model after the fact, post-factum, so to speak, was myself, because I went to the lab and I developed ALPS models in rats and in mice. And actually here at Rush, even in pigs in 2015, we developed an ALPS model because we tried to understand the mechanism of flow that led to this rapid liver regeneration in ALPS. So the animal
0: models came, but they came later. Can you expand on how you went from those successful trials in pigs to then this large international study with DRAGON?
1: This is the most exciting, like, trip in my life as a surgeon. I'll never forget this because I, you know, came to Chicago in two thousand fifteen from Switzerland um, with the intent of developing large animal models. We had a beautiful large animal lab at Rush University in Chicago, and I was able to to use uh, landrace pigs, which are large, kind of farm pigs, to use them as uh, as, a, as experimental animals. Um, to basically develop a, a better understanding of what was going on with Alps. And when I when I first did my experiments with these pigs, I couldn't really induce the same rapid hypertrophy that we had seen in humans uh, in Switzerland and other groups in the world had seen with the Alps methodology. So I was puzzled. And all, through this puzzlement, I started to realize that pigs have a little bit of a different anatomy. In uh, pig's case, Uh, the uh, vena cava is going right through the middle of the liver. And because it's going right through the middle of the liver, there's a lot of uh, potential for collateral formation uh, between the two sides of the liver. Basically, when we occluded one side of the liver, um, the livers didn't grow on the other side because a lot of collaterals developed. It took me a while, though, to figure that out. The way I figured it out is because my partner at the time and my boss here in uh, Chicago, Dr. Hurdle, said to me, why don't you do some cast models on the portal vein circulation with plastic casts? And so I injected this plastic into the portal vein circulation after we had done ALPS and I saw that there were still a lot of collaterals that in humans would never develop because the anatomy is different and there's no liver tissue under them. But in pigs, there is this liver tissue, and so all of these collaterals were traveling through that remaining liver tissue. And so that was the moment when I understood that the mechanism for rapid hypertrophy in Alps was actually being able to obstruct, to, to prevent these collaterals from happening. And in humans, that was very easy because we just divided the liver and there was no ability that there could be any collaterals developing. But in pigs, that wasn't possible. And so that was the first step in my understanding. Collaterals are the reason for rapid hypertrophy. So if you want to induce rapid hypertrophy, you need to prevent the formation of collaterals. Now, in pigs, though, that was very difficult. Like, I couldn't get under the vena cava to just cut through the liver there and do the same thing that I could do above the liver. So I had to find different ways to prevent collaterals in pigs. So one of the things that, again, my partner Martin Hurdle proposed to me, he said, you know, when we discussed this, we sat down in the evenings after I'd done my experiments and we looked at these casts together, he said, you know, why are the collaterals developing? I said, you know, Martin, I don't know. This is really tricky. Uh, There may be a lot of molecular factors around that swim around in the tissue there. I can't tell you, but we can try to identify them. We'll work on it. But then he said he found something very simple that I had never thought about initially. And they said, you know, collaterals only develop when there's outflow of blood, right? And I said, yes. And he said, and how is that blood flowing out from the other side of the liver? And I said, well, through the veins. And he said, why don't we occlude the veins at the same time as we occlude the portal veins. And we don't even transect the tissue anymore. And I said, because you know, the the magic of Alps had been you transect the tissue and thereby, and then you obstruct the portal vein flow. And then there's, there's no, all of the blood flows through the other side and no blood can flow back to the side where you obstructed the portal vein flow. And he said, why don't you obstruct the vein as well as the portal vein and you just leave the liver as it is. You don't even have to cut through the liver. And so I did that uh, in a few experiments, three, three pigs, that's it. It was just three pigs. And the amazing result to me was that when I measured the size, the growth uh, of the liver, it was just like an Alps. So that was the moment that I realized we don't really have to cut through the liver uh, in order to induce rapid hypertrophy. We just have to occlude both portal veins and hepatic veins. Of course, you can imagine in the next few weeks, a lot of experiments followed because we were excited about this. And we tried had to figure out whether it was actually good enough to wait a few days and then, you know, do the hepatic vein obstruction after the portal vein obstruction, just like the Koreans had done in humans already, and they'd already found that it wasn't effective. And of course, we confirmed it wasn't effective. So it really had to be done at the same time. And that's really when I saw that, I started to write that paper, and very excited about it, uh, submitted it to a journal. And when I was writing the paper, I found that a French group had done this in four patients already. So I had done the animal experiments here in the United States, you know, very orderly, tried to keep the process of science from the animal to the human and so on. But the French had been daring and they had already moved it in the humans. And I called the radiologist who had published these papers, Boris Gouillot, in Montpellier, uh, in France. And I said, uh, uh, I didn't know him. I said, Professor Gouillot, uh, I'm... I found something in animals. You have described it in humans. I saw in a paper about a year ago, published by you, that that actually double ligation of portal vein and hepatic vein leads to rapid hypertrophy, and uh, and I think it's as fast as Alp's. And Boris Gulyaev said to me, "What is Alp's?" Uh, because he was an interventional radiologist, even know that this rapid hypertrophy that he had described and found was very similar to the rapid hypertrophy that we surgeons used to induce with ALPS, a procedure that I was trying to overcome. And so the two of us got together and uh, tellingly, Boris Guglio is now also a member of the Dragon Trial, and we said, we need to work together. We need to put our, you know, information together, and we published a lot of papers after that together. We met in Lisbon a few months later on a European intervention radiology meeting. We sat down for hours plotted all kinds of plans. And one of the results of those plans was the decision to move ahead with an international consortium to investigate this new, newly discovered double uh, embolization or ligation discovered by me in animals, discovered by him in humans, uh, and, and to investigate it in a systematic thorough way in multiple centers across multiple countries, across multiple continents. And that's how the Dragon Collaborative was born.
0: And so now you're early on in the process, and is there early data that you can talk about thus far?
1: Yeah, so the, so, um, the Dragon Collaborative is based in Maastricht, um, and it is it came out of a collaboration between me and Ron Van Dam, who is a professor of surgery at Maastricht University and one of my best friends. And uh, Ron and myself found ourselves uh, in 2017 in, in, in China at the same time visiting a big hospital, a, a friend of ours. And so we all sat together and we said we need to we need to do what uh, what what we had discussed with Boris Gouillou in France and so i was suggesting that we that we would uh, you know do this together and ron had uh, this uh, ability uh, to launch this uh, dragon collaborative from maastricht because they have a very generous funding for research in the netherlands especially for surgical research and a lot of the new data about randomized trials in all fields of surgery come out of the netherlands that's very well known in the surgical community uh, in, in the united states and worldwide that the netherlands uh, the dutch are the leaders of evidence in in surgery. And so I was very happy with that. And, uh, and that's what we did. We found a PhD uh, who was willing to work on this project with us. He, his, his name is Raymond Kornblick. He's one of my closest uh, collaborators on this. And we started to collect centers that were willing to participate. And uh, within a short period of time, we found 52 centers. We organized a meeting in Amsterdam at the airport, which happened in 2019, uh, which I led. And Raymond Kornblick and uh, Ron van Dam led. And so the, the three of us kind of, you know, built this up. We, 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 there were subsequently more and more people who joined us. And I'm very proud to say that we were um, able to develop a protocol uh, for a prospective trial. This trial is called DRAGON-1, and the trial is running. But at the same time, we were also saying to ourselves, why don't we um, look into our experience so far? You know, every single one of the centers, those 52 centers that's joined in the DRAGON trial has had some experience with, with ALPS, PVE, and uh, and double embolization because they, of course, you know, read the papers, uh, were interested. They're the centers who were interested. We decided that we would uh, uh, evaluate uh, our experience so far. We found seven of the 52 centers who had done more than five uh, double embolization cases. We felt that was kind of the cutoff because we didn't want to report on like a single or two or three cases. And, you know, this is also kind of the cutoff five cases where you think, where where we think we should really proceed with a prospective study uh, and not just, you know, do it without ethics approval, uh, do a prospective study and so on. So five cases was kind of our limit. Um, And so seven centers uh, put their experience together. We published the results in the British Journal of Surgery uh, last year. And and, and the result was... uh, fascinating because what we did is we compared uh, double embolization with portal vein embolization and we found that the feasibility was 92 percent, means we only had 8 percent of the cases that failed and could not be resected, whereas in our uh, PVE cohort we were uh, at 58 percent, 60 percent. So basically we knew there was a 30 percent difference in terms of feasibility. Uh, So when when you're going to say it in simple terms, 10 patients you do uh, PVE in, uh, only six of them can be resected, uh, 10 cases you do a double embolization in, uh, nine of those patients can be resected. That was a real progress for us in our retrospective analysis and, and gave us more support to actually move ahead with the prospective study, which is, which is going on right now.
0: So what concerns, if any, do you have about this uh, approach, the double embolization approach?
1: We also evaluated uh, potential complications, concerns, uh, safety issues uh, in in the retrospective study that we did. And what we found was that actually our complication rate was much lower than complications in PVE and that there were really no major complications that we found in our cohort of about 40 patients that we investigated. So we thought it was a pretty safe method. Of course, in the prospective study, we still uh, have a data safety monitoring board that's uh, run out of the Netherlands that investigates uh, data uh, for every 10 patients enrolled, makes sure that there's no complications that we notice. And and we will report about that once it's out. Uh, so far, there's no dramatic complications that we are aware of uh, that would make this a method that would be too dangerous. And that is very different from ALPS, where we know knew from the beginning that complications were very high. Like even the first report out of Germany, uh, like I told you, had three mortalities out of 12 patients. That was a high mortality. And our mortality is in the Dragon retrospective analysis was much lower. So we think it's a much safer method than ours. We think it's a safer method or a method that is about as safe as PVE right now. But prospective data, of course, are the data that we have to rely on when we talk about safety and and those data are still pending uh, they, they can only be published and given out the moment we have uh, enrolled enough patients and the analysis is uh, is is concluded and you have to imagine with 52 centers it's going to take a while
0: i want to ask you something that you just talked about why why are complications greater with pve alone versus the combined approach
1: complications were not greater with pve alone oh. than with with they were about the same what we knew historically is that alps had a high complication rate and we wanted to be below that and that we have definitely achieved so we definitely find that occluding both the hepatic vein and the portal vein does not lead to more complications than pve that's all we can say right now uh, but that's a retrospective data set. And as you know, in, in science, you always need to have prospective data sets that are controlled, which means when you enroll a patient um, to say it in simple words, uh, that patient's outcomes also need to be reported. Whereas in retrospective analysis, centers tend to pick the cases that were successful and maybe uh, you know, forget about the cases that were not successful. And that's always a risk. It's always a bias that we know in retrospective data analysis. So, So we need to really wait for the prospective data to come out, but the retrospective data set showed us that there was no increased complication rate for, for double immunization compared to PVE. We didn't compare it to ALPS uh, because we had too little ALPS cases in our uh, centers that we, uh, we were analyzing. And I think it tells you something about the centers that are involved in this trial. I think we were all centers that were like critical, skeptical about ALPS. So we were all enthusiastic and embracing a new method that we thought was uh, better than ALPS. And that's the reason why we didn't have an ALPS comparison cohort. I think ALPS is an operation that shouldn't be done anymore. I think it's an old timer now, it's 10 years old and and it's it's too risky and uh, I, I think it should be
0: abandoned. It's really promising to think about how this could impact the future of liver cancer care. And specifically, I'm thinking about one of the cases here at Rush, that uh, the patient you treated with the double embolization approach, could you talk about sort of the the patient's treatment and prognosis with what if if you would have used the old methods versus the the double embolization? It's an I think it's an interesting contrast.
1: Yeah. So. I think I, I agree with you. I think that double is is opened more you know, universe of technical uh, opportunities for us to remove liver cancer. We cannot forget, however, that um, of course cancer care is um, uh, dependent on many factors. Uh, one of the factors is the effective use of chemotherapy. So uh, the reason why we're so successful with uh, treatment of uh, liver metastases is because our chemotherapy has improved for many of the cancers that make liver metastases and uh, also for primary liver cancers, not just for liver metastases. Colorectal cancer is a specific area where we have made a lot of progress over the last 20 to 30 years in terms of chemotherapy. And so all of our patients usually get first treated with chemotherapy. It is key to then, when we treat them with uh, surgical therapy to remove all of the cancers that they have, Uh, to basically not uh, make the pauses of chemotherapy too long, because the longer the pauses are, the more the tumors are starting to grow again. So it's really the systemic control with chemotherapy that helps us to be successful. I sometimes compare it to the Air Force and the Army in a war. Uh, You know, we are the Army, the surgeons, we're removing all of the cancers, but if we don't have coverage from the Air Force, which is the chemotherapy that the oncologists give, we're not going to be successful. We, We do need to support the effective anti-cancer effect of chemotherapy uh, for us to be successful. We really need that. The case that you're referring to is a, is a young woman um, who uh, came to, to us here in the tumor board uh, a few years ago, and we discussed her case, and the tumor was very extensive. She had liver metastases in both lobes of the liver, and uh, you know, by all criteria, one would have said it's likely too much to do surgery on her because it's going to be very, very difficult. But we gave a chemotherapy. Um, we um, saw a good effect of the chemotherapy on our tumors. We mapped all the, t- the tumors out. Uh, and then Sam Pappas, the chief of surgical oncology here, and myself, the two of us, we, we did this uh, operation in two stages. We first cleaned the left side of the liver, um, then um, let a little bit of time go by, not too long. Um, we then uh, in, induced rapid hypertrophy with uh, double embolization. And in that, we were helped by Dr. T- Dr. Tassi, who's who's um, from our Department of uh, Interventional Radiology and is doing an awesome job in in these cases and really helps us to do these cases, even uh, while patients on chemotherapy uh, in in some of our cases. And then we waited for hypertrophy and actually the liver in uh, this patient's case grew very beautifully and we were able to remove the right lobe. And then what's important is to do close follow-up, because I always tell my patients, kind of being a pessimist in that, I say, your recurrence rate is 100%. Tumors can come back in your liver. They can come back, and that's why I do an MRI at three months, I do an MRI at six months, another one at 12 months, so very close follow-up. And we also uh, follow our patients with uh, um, a very new technology that we're lucky to have at Rush, which is circulating tumor DNA. Um, which is an essay that we send to a company who does these analyses for us, and they're generously providing this essay to us, so we can actually also measure the liquid component of the tumor. I always tell my patients, you have two tumors. You have the tumor in your liver, but you also have the liquid tumor that's in your bloodstream. And those things help us to recognize early recurrence. The moment, um, you know, the the liquid tumor is uh, negative, and the moment uh, at the re- after the resection, and the moment it becomes positive again, we do uh, imaging. But we also do imaging at three months and six months and so on. And then we find recurrences. And that was the case in this patient you're referring to. And we went back at it. And we ablated these recurrences. We can do that now transcutaneously because when you detect them like that, they're small. they're They're early. You're watching them so closely, right? And so I always tell my patients, that's not a failure, that is just the way uh, this disease is, and we're going to go back at these recurrences. And the patient you're referring to has even developed recurrences in her lung, which is also sometimes part of the natural history of having metastatic disease. But we went after these recurrences as well. And so we're trying to keep her tumor free. She has been on and off chemotherapy to treat these recurrences, but I think it's key when you have a good liver metastasis or mid program in general, that you kind of chase these metastases down because, in the end, uh, the, the likelihood is that you're going to prolong patient survival. And in some patients, you can cure them even after multiple re interventions, even after multiple uh, re ablations that were necessary for recurrences or after re surgeries that are necessary for recurrences. Don't forget, uh, then uh, we are dealing with patients frequently who are between 30 and uh, 65, 70 years old that are young, for our understanding, and they deserve to have aggressive uh, care for these cancers because they are doing very well uh, otherwise. They're healthy people who lead a healthy life, but they've just been unlucky to have cancer. And so we we provide very aggressive care to to them and uh, we, we think we can prolong their life with that. And in some of those patients, and I would say it's difficult to really give a firm number because it depends on the extent of the disease you have, but it's about 30% of patients with colorectal limitastes at least we can actually get them to 10-year disease-free survival, which is what we define as cure. And I think everybody should get a chance at cure when they are 40 years old uh, or 50 years old and they have a whole life to live.
0: One last question. Um, what's the timeline for the recruitment and the publication of results from Dragon 1? And then when does Dragon 2 commence?
1: So Dragon uh, 2, to to take that question first, uh, is actually in the works. We haven't started enrolling yet, but we have worked on the protocol together uh, with the group in uh, the Netherlands um, in Maastricht. The Dragon 1, to get to your first question, is uh, uh, finishing up uh, at the end of this year, means the enrollment is finishing up at the end of this year. And uh, once uh, at the end of 2022, Uh, The last cases are brought in, the data are brought in, and the data need to be basically put into a big database, and then they will be analyzed. So I presume that we're going to see the first results in the spring from that analysis in the spring of, uh, or in the summer of 2023, uh, and we'll see the long-term follow-up results, which are important. The longer you wait, of course, the better is your knowledge about how the survival of these patients and so on as well. You want to know these things as well. We're going to hear more about that in the coming years. And I think the most exciting results are going to be out 2025, 2026 about DRAGON1 because that's when we're going to see the long-term survival. For now, we're just going to have perioperative outcomes, and I think those results are going to be out published on the meetings and possibly the first paper as well in the meetings in the summer of next year. It's a little disappointing uh, to people always when, when when I say things like that because they're like, you know, this takes forever, but this is just the process of science and we need to be respectful of that. Fortunately, we're doing uh, cases all the time. Uh, even outside of the trial, we're continuing to uh, do uh, double embolization because we're convinced it's a good method, so people can get it right now. Uh, if they come to Rush, you can get it right now. Uh, If we think it's indicated, we put these data into registry as well to evaluate them as well, to have their data as well. uh, And that's even beyond the Dragon 1 trial, uh, the inclusion of which closes at the end of this year. So we have like multiple levels at which we're collecting data. We're not just collecting data in Dragon 1. The really exciting study uh, for us is Dragon 2, which hasn't, the enrollment of which hasn't started yet. We're working on the protocol. Uh, In Dragon 2, we compare two cohorts with each other. One is getting current standard treatment, which is PVE, which most centers would say is the standard of, of care. Uh, and then the, the experimental group is going to be a double embolization, which we are somehow suspecting is better, convinced it, that it's better. And we're going to we we'll look at things like perioperative outcomes, complications, and long-term survival. And, um, and it's going to be exciting to see whether our suspicions that Double embolization is really the much better method. Are really turn out to be true in a randomized trial, so there is no bias involved in giving a, a certain treatment to one patient, a certain treatment to another patient. And it's it's a generally accepted scientific standard that if you cannot show difference or a superiority in a randomized trial, that that new method is not really proven to be better than the old method, and we need to we need to pass that very high uh, standard with double embolization to in the end say this is really the better met- method. And I think those results are going to have to wait till 2026, 2027, uh, when, when DRAGON2 2 is finally done, said and done and analyzed. Uh, and that's just how long it takes, as dis- disappointing as this may be uh, to the general population. They're like, you know, it takes forever. But the good news is uh, that we're already doing double embolization while we're doing these randomized trials. And that is not unusual. That's happens in the history of medicine all the the time, that we're already using certain methods, despite the fact that we're not 100% uh, by scientific standards convinced that it's the better method just because we presume it is the better method. You already get double embolization now at Rush and in other hospitals in the United States and in North America, Uh, although the the results of uh, Dragon 1 aren't even published because we have a suspicion that it's better, and the retrospective data show it's better, and there's no evidence that it's more dangerous than, uh, than PVE at all. It's doing very well, and so we can already offer this method to patients despite the fact that we don't have the rigid scientific knowledge yet about it that we need to accumulate over the next few years.
0: Well, Dr. Shadi, thank you so much for a great conversation today.
1: You're welcome.